0: Good morning. Good morning. Welcome to Northminster. Some of you may have noticed that Claire is not able to be here this morning. Uh, she wanted me to let you know that she's giving up church for Lent, so <laughs> she won't be here for a while. Uh, in reality, we have one of, our, uh, one of our sons is on the tail end of uh, Uh, Illness that they've kind of been passing back and forth so he would probably have been fine But we figured you would probably appreciate it more if we kept him in quarantine and away from your kids Uh, So they're at home today and speaking of the health of this congregation uh, I also want to mention uh, that because of the the midst of the season uh, and the health story that we're in right now We're not going to have a common cup today or for the next few weeks uh, we're going to have three communion servers and uh, just the, the, little, the little shot glasses of communion today, not the common cup. So, this is the first Sunday of Lent, and I would like to say something about how we're approaching this season and what we're doing with this season. There are many levels from which you can look out upon the world. The highest and most true reveals our place in God in God's place in us. It reveals God burning at our core, whether we name that consciousness, or being, or Christ, or the Holy Spirit. It reveals that we are each different forms of God's one loving consciousness. It also reveals us in the context of God, of the fountain that is the universe, forming us like droplets of water, each made of the same stuff, each coming from and returning to its source. It reveals the form as temporary, but the fountain as immortal. When we're looking out upon the world from that level, or from where Jesus calls the kingdom of God, we are what the wisdom traditions refer to as our true selves. We're loving and joyful and peaceful and patient and kind and gentle. There's nothing to fear and there's nothing to protect. There's only presence and truth. On different levels of awareness, though, the two drops from the fountain with their different forms appear different and separate. When we regard one another from this place, we begin to fall into judgment. There's better and worse, good and evil. And once we've eaten that fruit, The result is fear of one another, shame when we don't measure up, dread of the day when our form finally returns to its source. That's what the wisdom traditions call the false self or the ego, the flesh, the world. It's not evil in itself. It has an evolutionary place and we need it, but we find though, that it's a great servant, but a horrible master. It's the bushel basket that covers over our light. The work of the Christian then and indeed the work of all humanity is to follow the pattern of Jesus in death and resurrection, dying to our false selves and finding the life waiting beneath because it's then that it's no longer we that live but Christ in us. Now, why am I starting your Sunday morning with a crash course on mystic Christianity? That's a good question. It's because this is the first Sunday of Lent. And Lent is when we take seriously that work of dying to our false selves. Because it's only when we take death seriously that resurrection means anything. In general terms, this makes sense. It might even look appealing. But when we get specific, when we start naming those parts of us that Christ calls us to let go of, then our ego is going to start to protest, and that's how we know we're on the right track. So brace yourselves, because we're about to get very specific. The stories we're focusing on for the next six weeks are the false stories the church has long told about sexuality. They're stories that have far more to do with shame and fear than with God, and yet they always seem dressed up as divine mandates and the damage they do in that disguise is immeasurable. Any conversation about sexuality will inevitably make us uncomfortable, but I would argue that this is at the heart of why we have to do it. the discomfort, the shame, that is what gives rise to these stories that do the harm. And it's only by bringing them into the light that we can begin the work of healing. As we survey the suffering caused by our false stories from the revelations of systemic sexual abuse in Catholic and Protestant churches alike to the Me Too movement to the Church Too movement to the shocking rates of attempted suicide among LGBTQ plus teens as we look at this suffering I hope it becomes clear to us that our discomforts talking about sex is a small price to pay for the healing work that must be done. Now having said that, I also want to give a trigger warning. Like I mentioned before, this conversation will take us into uh, conversations about implications of sexual abuse, particularly in the church. And there's a difference between embracing your discomfort and having to sit through something that does psychological damage. So I want you to know there's a difference and there's no shame if this conversation is not for you right now. But having said that, I now invite us to set about our work, to start our Lenten journey of awareness, of confession, and repentance. Northminster, let's go about our work of dying to the false stories, because it's only then that we can discover the miracle of resurrection waiting for us at the end of this journey. Let us begin the corporate work of Lent.
1: Corporate confession is a central part of the season of Lent. Throughout this season, in the place of our usual pastoral prayer, we will offer a confession together, and though they will take different forms, each will attempt to guide us toward our aim of taking a hard look at the ways we have fallen short that we might do the work of letting go, of dying fully and well. As we enter this time of confession, I invite you to participate. Each time I conclude with the line, merciful God, we humbly repent of our sin, you are invited to respond, "O oh God, gracious God, have mercy on us. The confessions I will read are loose quotes from the book Shameless by Reverend Nadia Bolz Weber, which many of us will be reading together over the next several weeks. May her words help guide us into this season of reflecting on the church's relationship with sex, let us pray. Oh God, as a part of your church in this world, we acknowledge that in our striving for sexual purity, or at least the appearance of it, we have led ourselves straight into pride and despair, not into holiness. Because holiness is about union with and purity is about separation from. For confusing the two, merciful God, we humbly repent of our sin. Oh
2: God, gracious God, have
1: mercy on us. We lament that in our culture, Christians are known for being more loyal to ideas and doctrines than they are to people. If the teachings of the church are harming the bodies and spirits of people, we ought to rethink those teachings. We have elevated purity at the expense of humanity, leading not to an increase of holiness, but to a culture of secrecy, hypocrisy, and double standards. Merciful God, we humbly repent of our sin. O God, gracious God, have mercy on us. In elevating purity, We have made the church a place where impurity is somehow taboo. We need a place to confess that we don't have everything figured out. Christianity is not a program for avoiding mistakes. It is a faith of the guilty. We learn from our mistakes. We extend grace to others and ourselves. For all the places and ways, we have instead rejected grace, merciful God, We humbly repent of our sin. Oh
0: God, gracious God, have mercy on us.
1: For a faith that has encouraged the silence of those who have experienced certain types of pain, pain surrounding their sexual identity, pain surrounding sexual abuse, pain surrounding sexual violence or violence because of their sex or gender, we cry aloud and lament. There is no need for these wounds to be offered as unspoken requests for prayer. There is a cost to trying to deny pain, to denying ourselves or others the process of grieving. Eventually our bodies must process it and there will be in the end an emotional balloon payment that comes due. For the ways we have been complicit in perpetuating the silence, merciful God, we humbly repent of our sin.
2: Oh God, gracious God, have mercy on us.
1: For all the misguided, harmful messages that Christianity inflicted on the world, we lament. And still, we cherish that which has nourished us. We cherish being a part of a community where things matter, where our lives bear a continual inflection of faith. We belong to a community that connects the events in our lives to the divine. We search ancient scripture for meaning and guidance. We sing our hearts out. We call each other sister and brother. We belong to each other. For allowing these gifts to be buried under our fear and shame surrounding sex and sexuality, merciful God, we humbly repent of our sin. O God, gracious God, mercy on us. I invite you now into a time of silent confession to open ourselves to look deeply at that which we would rather not confront. A time to listen for truths we would rather not hear because the voices that call us towards love are often overshadowed by the louder more insistent voices that guide our thoughts and actions. I will conclude our silence with a final word of assurance. Beloved of God, where sin has increased, grace abounds all the more. You are seen and known by God, and you are loved. Amen.
2: the Gospel of Matthew. After being baptized by John in the Jordan, Jesus went into the desert like the children of Israel had done so many years before. In scripture, the desert is a place of trial. It is a place of discomfort, but also a place of clarity. The desert is where we hear most clearly the voice of the ego, the accusing, false voice in our soul that is constantly making promises it can never keep. The desert is where we see it and where we learn to let it go. This reading, then, is ideal for the first Sunday of Lent, as the church begins her own 40-day sojourn into the desert. May we see ourselves in this universal human story. Hear now this reading from the Gospel according to Matthew. Then Jesus was led into the desert by the Spirit to be tempted by the accuser. After fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, Jesus was hungry. So the attempter approached and said, If you are the only begotten, command these stones to turn into bread. Jesus replied, Scripture says, We live not on bread alone, but on every utterance that comes from the mouth of God. Next, the accuser took Jesus to the holy city, set him on the parapet of the temple, and said, If you are the only begotten, throw yourself down. Scripture says, God will tell the angels to take care of you. With their hands they will support you, that you may never stumble on a stone. Jesus answered, Scripture also says, do not put God to the test. The accuser then took Jesus up a very high mountain and displayed all the dominions of the world in their magnificence, promises. All these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. At this, Jesus said to the accuser, Away with you, my adversary. Scripture says, You will worship the Most High God. God alone will you adore. At that, the accuser left, and the angels came and attended Jesus.
0: Christianity has been telling stories about sexuality for centuries. Different stories about what sex is, what it's for, where the parameters should be. One could make a convincing argument that from the writings of the earliest apostles, the church has been sex-obsessed. These stories, though, have often done more damage than good. They bear the fruits of shame and division, fear and control. And that's why, over the next six weeks, we'll be looking at different pieces of these stories and exploring and evaluating their implications by the light of our own experience with God. The conversation will take us in several directions, but now, on the first Sunday, I'd like us to start with what I consider to be the core story from which the rest of the modern conversation seems to flow. Let's call it the purity story. Whether or not you grew up in church, you probably inherited some version of this story, or if you didn't, then the story you were told was likely a response to or reaction to the purity story because it's so prevalent. In its simplest form, it goes something like this. God's plan for sex is that it should happen only within the context of a monogamous heterosexual marriage. And in most circles, we can also add the often unspoken clause, and even then, it's best not to talk about it. (laughs) Because our bodies, frankly, are embarrassing. By the rules of this story, you've got to remain pure until marriage, which is where we get the name people use for the sort of culture this idea fosters, purity culture. If you step outside of those parameters, you are, by contrast, Impure. And not only is God then disappointed in you, but to hear most youth ministers tell it, all manner of hell is likely to break loose. <laughs> Any of us who have spent time in an evangelical tribe is, are probably familiar with the True Love Waits campaign. But you may or may not be familiar with the True Love Waits study Bible, which is a thing. One passage reads, The heart of true love waits is a personal scriptural promise to God to be sexually abstinent from that day to one's wedding day. Students who choose to order their lives after God's design will experience the joy God intended. And those who do not will live with the natural consequences of their choices, which include guilt, disease, broken hearts and relationships, damaged children, depression, and death. But here's the thing about the purity culture story. It doesn't work. Contrary to popular belief, it doesn't work for the teenage boy who knows early on that something's different about him. He knows he's not like the other boys, and no matter how much he prays or how many nights he stays up crying, he doesn't seem to be getting any closer to normal. The story doesn't work for him. Or for the young man taught to flat out deny his hardwired sex drive. And so he finds himself locked in a daily cycle of pornography and self-hatred, sexual expression, and deep shame. The story doesn't work for him. Or for the person who's never really been interested in sex at all, they're perfectly content without it, yet their church and their culture constantly tell them that until they are married, they're somehow less than fully human. The story doesn't work for them. Or the young woman told again and again that her bathing suit is inappropriate and that she's responsible for men's so-called uncontrollable sexual urges until she comes to believe that she should be ashamed of her body. And anything abusive that a man might do to her may well be her fault. The story doesn't work for her. Or for the woman repeatedly denied job advancement opportunities because her employer believes that neither he nor she can be trusted in a room alone together the story doesn't work for her. Or for the couple who does what they're supposed to, who follows the script and waits until they're married, but then finds themselves confused and ashamed when they are not able to magically flip a switch and enjoy using the bodies that they've spent their lifetime learning to deny. The story doesn't work for them. Or for the woman who does what she's supposed to, who acts like her mother and her pastor told her to act. She gets married and then within the context of that beautiful monogamous heterosexual marriage is raped by a domineering husband. The story doesn't work for her. Or for the kids entirely unequipped to navigate their own sexuality because their parents and teachers are too afraid or ashamed to give them any kind of quality education. How many of these kids, lacking any real knowledge of how intercourse or intimacy work, wind up pregnant? Or worse, aren't confident uh, enough to know when their bodies are being violated? No, the purity story is not working for them. Each of these, though they may not seem directly related, is a symptom, an implication, even if it was unintended of the purity story that the church has been telling for so long about sex. The fruit of this story has proved rotten time and again. Shame, manipulation, the idolatry of sex, destructive and degrading sexual expression. Too many have suffered for too long under the judgmental eyes of an easily disappointed and voyeuristic God. And if you've heard yourself anywhere in these stories, then listen closely, because I want to tell you that you are not an abomination, that you are not impure, and that you are not broken. The story is. And by God, you deserve a better one. The first step in discovering a new story is to get to the roots of the bad one. And I believe that starts with the Bible. We've been told that the purity culture is somehow biblical, or as the True Love Waits campaign called it, God's design. So let's spend a minute there. When we're talking about God's design, I just want to clarify. Are we talking about Jacob and his wife? I'm sorry, wives? Because there were four of them, kind of. Two of them were concubines? Is that the biblical design we're talking about? Or are we talking about Rebecca and her cousin-husband, Isaac? David and Bathsheba? Okay, maybe we're not talking about stories at all. Maybe we're talking about laws, like this one. If a man happens to meet a virgin who is not pledged to be married and rapes her, and he is discovered, he shall pay 50 shekels to her father for damaging his property and marry her. Is that the clear biblical design we're talking about? Because I would make the argument that each of those stories and those laws has far more to do with the culture that produced them than any kind of divinely inspired blueprint for marriage. To be fair, polygamy had essentially disappeared by the writing of the Christian scriptures, but not because of a divine mandate so much as shifting cultural norms. I wonder if there were any weddings in Jerusalem with one man and one woman, with conservative Hebrew protesters outside holding a sign that says, God's plan is for one man and lots of women. (laughs) However, what we find in the Greco-Roman world in which the Christian scriptures were written is still an understanding of marriage totally rooted in patriarchy and property rights. Paul's epistles were written within the matrix of that cultural assumption, which is why hearing him teach about marriage, frankly, sounds like sandpaper to our ears. He writes, Wives, be subject to your husbands as you are to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, just as Christ is the head of the church, the body of which he is the Savior. Just as the church is subject to Christ, so wives ought to be in everything subject to their husbands. If we understand the cultural narratives in which he's working though, we find that most of the time he's not swallowing them uncritically so much as subverting them, pushing their limits. Because he didn't have to add this next part. Husbands, love your wives just like Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. That's how husbands ought to love their wives in the same way they do their own bodies. In both of these, he's looking at an existing cultural pattern through the lens of Christ. And he's not giving us an eternal blueprint for how marriage should look, but teaching us how to look at our own existing cultural patterns through the lens of Christ. Paul doesn't set a law. He sets a trajectory that transcends his own cultural norms, one that we are meant to follow into our own. The truth is, There is no timeless, divinely dictated set of standards for sexuality in the Bible. Only a dance between egoic cultural scripts and the subverting, challenging spirit of love. The purity story, it turns out, has far more to do with imposing our own shame and control-based Puritan cultural standards on the Bible than the other way around. In other words, as theologian Walter Wink taught, there is no biblical sex ethic. The Bible knows only a love ethic. And that doesn't mean everything goes. It means that everything has got to be critiqued by Jesus's commandment to love. And it's there, from that love ethic, that the seeds of a new Christian story about sexuality needs to grow. As Dr. Wink wrote, the new story is far from anything goes. A new Christian sexual ethic is not one of sex without consequences or one that ignores the destructive potential of trying to use sex to find that which it cannot provide. That would be to swap out one false cultural script for another equally harmful one. No. A story about sex seen through the lens of Christ's love, should be characterized by those things that we are taught characterize God's love. That means they should be rooted in unconditional love, which means that it's utterly free from shame. It means that it should bear the fruit of joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, and self-control. It means it should be patient and kind free from jealousy, or pride, or manipulation. It must be about openness, and honesty, and self-sacrifice, about transcending the illusion of separateness, and grounded in gratitude and joy. In that story, God's light shines through each part of us, including our sexuality, whatever form that takes. On Wednesday, we're going to be starting our new book study on Shameless by Nadia Boltzweber. And in her book, she begins by considering how to best characterize this new Christian sexual story. And she does so by coming up with three excellent questions that we have to ask to determine whether our sexuality is born from the spirit or the ego. And the first question is, is it free from coercion, dominance, or violence? In other words, is there consent? And consent here means more than just the absence of a no. It means, is there enthusiastic consent? Second, are the sexual rights of all persons being respected, protected, and fulfilled? In other words, is there mutuality? Are all parties being treated as equals? Are all parties finding joy and pleasure in the encounter? And finally, is there a demonstration of concern for the other? In other words, other words, are we acting with the best in, in the best interest of the other and not just our own self-interest? Is this a manifestation of Christ-shaped love? On this one, Boltzweber clarifies, I may be having a mutually pleasurable, consensual relationship with someone, but if I'm cheating on my spouse at the same time, I've failed to show concern for the person I'm married to. Or if I'm in crisis and totally distraught, I may be more likely to consent to sex when sex is in fact the last thing I need. But if someone sleeps with me anyway, they may have consent and mutuality, but they're not showing concern. A sexual ethic that includes concern means seeing someone as a whole person, not just a willing body. Consent, mutuality, and concern. How would our world look different if this were the story the church told? What if this was what we had heard from our parents What if this was what we taught to our children? What if sexuality was not just rooted in a list of thou shalt nots, but a deep concern with one another's flourishing? What if we redefined sexual sin no longer just as stepping outside of some cultural script, but as that which fails to love well? What if sexual immorality? was that which reduces others to objects for our gratification. What if our sexuality could help us follow the narrow way of Christ's love for our world? And if we're honest, how many monogamous heterosexual encounters even hold up to this kind of ethic? It makes you wonder how we've been satisfied with so much less for so long. And on the other side of that coin, What if some of the things our church has been telling us were shameful or inherently wrong for so long could actually be sexually healthy expressions of God's love? Same-sex relationships, unmarried partnerships, self-pleasure, polyamorous relationships, consent, mutuality, and concern. These are the things that go beyond an egoic need to regulate external moral behavior and ask us to examine our hearts, to allow the Spirit's love to work and shine through us. These are the things that help us in the work of dying to ourselves so that Christ can live through us. This is the work of Lent. It's the work of Christian discipleship. It's the work of becoming human. People of God, this is a story worth telling. Children of God, if you've been wounded by the church's bad stories for so long, this is the story you've always deserved. And I'm so sorry if you haven't gotten it until now. Church of God, in this season of confession and repentance, May we publicly confess and repent of this purity story. And on our sojourn through the wilderness this season, let's learn to tell this story well, for this is the story of Christ. And it is good, liberating news for all who hear it. Amen.